0: Your uh, Ecclesiastes 3, we'll finish out the chapter and then we'll go into Ecclesiastes chapter 4. It's been a while, a few weeks since I've been behind the pulpit and I am thankful for the break. But nonetheless, I have a lot to cover. But it's going to take me a very brief amount of time. And so I'm going to try to be brief. That's a lie. Uh, or excuse me, usually a lie. But I really am. I'm going to make the attempt to be brief tonight because I hear that the Seahawks are playing. It's a very important game and I want to see the outcome. Uh, did the 49ers win today? Good. The 40, 49ers won. So we're gonna we're gonna beat Hey now. We're going to beat the Rams, then we're going to beat the 49ers, and we're going to win our division. So I want to go see that, and so I'll try to be brief and mindful of the time tonight. Uh, Ecclesiastes chapter number three and verse number 16, and let me just give you some, uh, uh, let me just build some momentum here. We've been in Ecclesiastes now for about six weeks. I believe this is the sixth message uh, that we've preached in this uh, series, meaningless uh, uh, sermon series through the book of Ecclesiastes. And we've looked at this man Solomon and how Solomon had uh, just great zeal and a a lot of passion and and, uh, a lot of zeal in his younger years when he wrote the book of Song of Solomon and then he had a lot of wisdom that uh, he protruded in the book of Proverbs, how he asked God for wisdom and God gave him wisdom and not only that, he gave him wealth beyond measure and he gave him a number of different other things in regards to his worldly possession and honor in his reign as king and so now the contrast that we're looking at is Solomon in the latter part of his life, he kind of just comes to this abrupt halt in his life where he goes through this series in this valley that I don't ever believe he comes out of i believe according to the book of second kings that solomon dies bitter at god solomon dies having experienced everything that he's experienced in his life and the blessings of god but then he comes to the conclusion that all is vanity saith the preacher and so that's what we've been looking at and uh, a couple of weeks ago i really enjoyed preaching that message uh it's okay to enjoy yourself how many of you were here from that and how many of you went home and you obeyed my instructions and you went and spent time with your family Uh, We could just testify, I enjoyed so much that opportunity, and I hope that you take advantage of that, not just when uh, the preacher prompts you to, but I think you should intentionally spend time with your family, and be thankful, because it's a gift from God, is it not? All the blessings that we receive, and the blessings that we get to experience here on earth, it's a blessing from God, and we ought to take advantage of it, contrary to what some people think, it's okay. Have a good time It's okay to enjoy yourself And so Ecclesiastes chapter 6 Or excuse me 3 Verse number 16 Let's start there And moreover I saw under the sun Uh oh I saw under the sun We talked about this a few weeks ago Solomon changes his perspective right To under heaven And now he's back to looking at things under the sun He says I saw under the sun In the place of judgment The place of judgment That wickedness was there In the place of righteousness That iniquity was there and I said in mine heart, God shall judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time there for every purpose and for every work. I said in mine heart concerning the estate of uh, yet yeah, I said in my heart concerning the state of the sons of men that God might manifest them and that they might see that they themselves are beasts. For that which befalleth the sons of man befalleth beast; even one thing befalleth them, as the one dieth, so dieth the other. Yea, they have all one breath, so that a man hath no preeminence above a beast, for all is vanity. All go into one place; all are of the uh, of the dust, and all turn to dust again. Who knoweth the spirit of man that goeth upward, and the spirit of the beast that goeth downward to the earth? Wherefore, I perceive that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his own works for that which uh, excuse me for that uh, for that is his portion for who shall bring him to see that shall be after him. Verse one of chapter four, it says, so I returned and considered all the oppression that are uh, excuse me, that are done. There it is again under the sun and behold, the tears of such as were oppressed and they had no comforter and on the side of their oppressors. They, uh, there was power, but they had no comforter. Wherefore, I praise the dead, which are already dead, more than, uh, more than the living, yet, uh, which are yet alive. Yea, better uh, is he uh, than both they, which have not yet been, who hath not seen the evil work that is done, and then he closes it, under the sun. Uh, tonight, for just a few moments, I'd like to talk to you about this subject in light of our text. Are you ready? Are you writing it down? Who has, who's a note taker? Who's note takers out there? Okay, here we go. I, I, like, I, like, I like catchy titles. They help me to remember things. Here's a catchy title for you. Nobody likes me. Everybody hates me. Guess I'll go eat worms. Alright? Nobody likes me. Everybody hates me. Guess I'll go eat worms. If you're already tired of writing, here's a subtitle for you. Life's not fair. Okay, talk about that tonight. Life's not fair. Let's uh, ask the Lord's blessing upon the service, and then we'll get started. Lord, I pray that you'd be with us tonight as we open up your word, and uh, we begin to expound upon the scriptures. I do pray that you'd be with me. Uh, I don't want to be too long tonight. I'd like to be brief, because I believe that the truth is simple, and I don't want to waste a lot of time uh, trying to unfold this text, but uh, nonetheless, I do think it is important that we understand what we're going to be talking about tonight, and I do pray that you'd just help me, help us as we go through your word. I pray that we'd learn something tonight about you, and it would cause us to change something about us, so that we could draw nigh to you and be closer to you pray that you'd be with us tonight, in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, In case you haven't noticed, I love sports, and I love using sports analogies, and I love using sports illustrations, and so this is actually something that happened this week, last Tuesday. In a game between the Houston Rockets and the San Antonio Spurs, James Harden rose for an uncontested dunk late in the fourth quarter. It went into the basket with great downward force, as so many of his other dunks have done before. Then came an apparent violation of some of the fundamental laws of physics. I was going to show you the video, but uh, do we have the picture ready? Do we have it available? If you can see, this is the dunk. This is the aftermath. And I'm going to read to you what took place. You can leave the lights off for just a second. The ball passed through the hoop but then spun upward back on the top of the rim where it bounced uh, two times before uh, uh, drifting away, giving the impression of a missed dunk. The ball clearly passed through the hoop before its odd levitation, but the ruling on the court was no basket to the Rockets' disbelief. Every point mattered in the game, which went into double, double overtime before the Spurs defeated Harden's Rockets 135-133, a game in which could have been decided had the refs made the right call and counted Harden's basket late in the remaining minutes of regulation. You can turn the lights back on. I don't know if you can can see what took place, but just simply the ball went in with such force and velocity that the net caused the ball to turn back upside down, and it appeared as, and started bouncing on top of the rim, and it appeared as though James Harden had missed the dunk. Referee makes the call. He says, no good. Basket, no good. And I believe, after watching uh, the highlights, I think that that was the deciding factor, changed the momentum of the game, and it was the deciding factor in that game, and the Rockets go on to lose in double overtime. You know what? As I was watching that, I'm not, a, I'm not a Rockets fan, but I am rooting for anybody who's playing the Spurs. I don't like the Spurs, okay? And so I'm pulling against the Spurs, and Rockets should have won that game. And you know what word came to mind as I was watching the highlights of that game, and namely that call? Unfair. That's not right, that's clearly not fair, it was abundantly clear, anybody uh, that's partially blind would be able to see that the basket clearly counted and the ball clearly went through the hoop and so I thought that that was very unfair, now I know this about you guys, you guys, most of you are not basketball fans, you don't like basketball. How many of you, just be honest, you don't care about what I just said? That's what I thought, most of you, okay? I wrote down some other illustrations in regards to sports. Uh, Brother Tracy, I thought of you this week as I, was, as I was thinking about this. Do you remember Armando Galarraga's almost perfect game back in 2010, pitcher for the uh, uh, Detroit Lions? Back in 2010, okay, let me just ask real quickly, how many of you know what a perfect game is for a pitcher? All right. A, pit, he, no, a Detroit, uh, uh, excuse, yeah, no, it was the Detroit Lions. Tigers, Tigers. There it is. I'm a big baseball fan. <laughs> He's a pitcher for the Detroit Tigers. Thank you. I appreciate it. And uh, he, uh, a perfect game is very rare, okay? Uh, some 20-something, I believe. It's 20-something men have ever uh, pitched a perfect game. And so it was late in the uh, top of the ninth. He's retired 26 batters up until this point. And uh, it's the top of the ninth inning. He has two outs, one to go. And I believe he's pitching to Cabrera, and Cabrera hits a uh, a ground ball. I mean, it's just an elementary ground ball. The short uh, shortstop picks it up, and he actually throws it to uh, Armando, and Armando catches the ball and steps on first base, and Cabrera crosses. It was abundantly clear that he was out, but the pitcher, excuse me, the umpire called him safe, thus taking away his perfect game. Now, they went on to win the game, so it really didn't matter, but... The outcome of the game didn't necessarily matter as far as history is concerned. Because now he is not going to be in the record books as being one of the few who's pitched a perfect game. Unfair. Matter of fact, so unfair that it led to death threats for that umpire. So unfair. I'm di- I'm not kidding. It led to death threats in regards to that umpire. And, uh, and every, I mean, every time that he would make a call going forward, there was all sorts of discrepancies and so forth. And so unfair. It wasn't fair. It just wasn't right. Uh, How many of you remember the replacement era, excuse me, the replacement referee era in the 2010-2012 season, excuse me, 2011-2012 season? Refs go on strike, and they bring in, here's the criteria for a referee at that time. There was no criteria. You could be a ref, I could be a ref, it didn't matter how much you knew about football, you could be a ref. How many of you remember some of those games? It gave way for many bad calls. But to this day, if you Google it, The worst call in the replacement referee era was known as the fail Mary that benefited your Seattle Seahawks. How many of you remember that game? It was in September. I remember it's September, uh, or October of, of 2012, and uh, the Packers and the Seahawks are going back and forth. And it's in the remaining like three seconds of the game. Russell Wilson throws a prayer to the end zone, and Golden Tate goes up, and he's surrounded by I don't know five or six Packers. And Russell, or excuse me, Golden Tate goes up to receive the ball, and I believe it was Marvin Jennings, uh, the safety. Marvin Jennings goes up and clearly intercepts the ball. Clear. I mean, it was no, no doubt about it. It was a clear interception, but Golden Tate gets his hands in there, and they both come down with the ball, and you can, you can YouTube it. It's actually very entertaining. There's a ref that stands. Here's where the play happens. There's a ref standing here, and there's a ref standing right here. This referee goes touchdown, and this referee says, no good. <laughs> they awarded the reception to the Seahawks, and the Seahawks won the game. Now, how many of you Seahawks think that's perfectly fair? (laughs) Yeah, I thought so. I don't see, is Jordan here tonight? Jordan's not here tonight. Jordan's a big Packers fan. I would imagine, are there any other Packers fans in here? I'd imagine that if you ask a Packers fan, they'll probably tell you that that was not fair. Not a fair call. And I share that last one to kind of drive home a point. Fairness is dependent upon personal perspective, is it not? I mean, it's all dependent on personal perspective. Everybody in here, if you're a Seahawks fan, you think, I have no problem with that call, Lamar. I think it was perfectly fair because it benefited you. But it might not uh, be be said amongst a Packers fan who's going to say, no, no, that's absolutely not fair. And that's the problem with fairness is, is it's dependent upon personal perspective. What you think is fair, I might not think is fair. And what I think is fair might not be what you think is fair. Again, it's dependent on personal perspective. And one of the most frustrating things that can ever... I'm talking about for a child. One of the most frustrating things that they will ever hear uttered from their parents are the words... Say it with me if you're a parent. Life's not fair. I got some parents in here. Life's not fair. I heard that many a times when I was growing up. All the time I would go and complain to my father about something. And he'd say, well, son, life's not fair. And I swore. Listen. I swear I'd never say it. <laughs> when I am a dad, I am never gonna tell my children that life is not fair. That's such a cop out. Uh, that's a, that's such a cop out response. That's just you not wanting to give me a logical explanation. And I swore I would never, ever, 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 as a father, ever look at my kids in the face and say life is not fair. My son is two and a half. He can barely formulate a sentence, and it's part of my daily vocabulary. Son. Life's not fair. (laughs) Life is not fair. And you know why that statement resonates with me as a father is because I've come to understand life is not fair. It's just not. It's not fair. And if you came tonight uh, desiring to hear a message on how I can tell you to make life fair, I'm sorry you came to the wrong church tonight because I'm going to reiterate that statement. Life isn't fair. It's not uh, taxation, we're coming into tax season, coming into the new year. Taxation is not fair, is it? It is not right that I work 50, 60 hours a week and they take my hard-earned money and take a large portion of that money, money, by, by the way, in which I won't get back. That's not fair. I, mean, uh, no, I guess no one agrees with me. Are you okay with taxation or you believe that that's not fair? It's not fair that they're going to take my money that I earned and use it for things that I don't approve of and then I don't even get to see that money again. I don't get it back. Taxation is not fair. Here's another one. Aging is not fair. (laughs) It's not. Uh, Lamar, what are you talking about? Aging is just a cycle of life. This makes no sense to me. How the older you get, the more wisdom you attain, yet the less energy you have. Is that true? The older you become, the more wisdom you attain, but the less energy you have to be able to execute the wisdom that you now have. And you know what I'm talking about? You're 16, you're 17 years old, and you're dumb as a bag of rocks, but you can run circles around everybody. But then you get into your 30s, your 40s, and your 50s, and you've got all the wisdom in the world, but not an ounce of that energy. Not fair. That's not right. It's not right that the older I'd get, the wiser I'd become, less energy I would have. What about this one? Uh, Genetics are not fair. Not fair. Uh, I, I am 130 pounds. I am skinny, and I'm short. That's not fair. I would rather be tall and skinny or short and stocky, but no, I am short and I am skinny. Those are two combinations you don't want to have. That's not fair to me. Uh, To me, that doesn't make sense. It's not fair that I look out and I see, uh, I don't see him here tonight, but uh, Brother Erickson is nice and tall, and uh, some of you guys will look at you and you've got nice muscles and all those things. I'm runty, I'm scrawny, and I'm also short. That's not fair. Genetics is not fair. Stephen Marabali. Uh, hair is another one, but it's going very quickly. I was talking to, uh, I think it was Avery just this week about my hair, and he was looking at the picture that was here. Uh, that's uh, actually a picture of me and Miss Erin. And that was like three years ago, and I had more hair in that picture than I do now. So, uh, hey, it's coming for me. You know, I got an expiration date on my hairline there. Uh, Stephen Marabali said this. The only thing that makes life unfair is the delusion that it should be fair. Oscar Wilde said in his book that life is never fair, and perhaps, listen to this, perhaps it's a good thing for most of us that it's not. And the truth is that life really is unfair. And I believe that no one uh, knows this better than Solomon, apparently, because he wastes no time in explaining that to us in the first three chapters of Ecclesiastes on how life is not fair. And we spent the past couple of weeks unfolding those first three chapters. And like a sixth grade little girl, Solomon's sitting there complaining about the unfairness of life. All this vexation and vanity of spirit. Everything is vanity, saith the preacher. Life is just mechanical monotony. Nobody likes me. Everybody hates me. Guess I'll go eat worms. Life is just not fair. That's Solomon. And again, I want to be careful. I don't want to... I don't want to paint a false narrative because life is not fair. And for some people in this room, that's actually a big deal. Uh, we can kind of make fun and play, but uh, life is not fair when it comes to losing a loved one. That's a big deal. I don't want to make a joke of that. It's, it's not fair when you spend your life with someone and God elects to take that person from you. That's not fair. It's not fair when you work uh, your tail off to get a promotion and someone uh, else who hasn't worked half as hard as you gets that promotion over you. That's not fair. It's not fair when you raise your children in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord and then they turn 18 and they depart from the faith. That's definitely not fair. Life really is not fair. And in our text, very quickly tonight, Solomon points out a few things that I'd like us to notice about the unfairness of life. Very quickly, the unfairness of life. Number one, if you're taking notes, I want you to notice the problem with the process. The problem with the process, look at verse number 16, it says, And moreover, I saw under the sun the place of judgment, that wickedness was there. And the place of righteousness, that iniquity was there. You know what Solomon saw? Solomon saw injustice in the legal system of his day. He says that he looks out on the courts of judgment and he sees uh, in the courts that there was wickedness there. And then it says that he looks out and he's looking where righteousness ought to reside, but instead he finds iniquity there. In short, Solomon is saying that the guilty went free and innocent suffered unjustly. The rich could buy their freedom and the poor were abused by the system. Hold on a second, does that not sound very, very familiar to today's society? Up is down and down is up. Left is right and right is left. Uh, we're living in a day where, uh, where the guilty uh, are, are going free and the innocent suffer unjustly. We're living in a day where the rich can buy their freedom and the poor are abused by the system. You know why I know all that? You know why I'm privy to all that? Because the news told me so. News told me so. News, uh, let me help you with something. If you're, if you're struggling with discouragement, stop watching the news. If you're struggling with discouragement and you're having a problem finding joy in the Christian life and you're watching three and four hours of Fox News and MB, MSNBC and all the other letter news, I don't care what platform, i can just trust me, stop watching the news and you'll see your joy increase. You know why that is? It doesn't matter what platform it is. It doesn't matter whether, again, it's the, uh, the a re- a Republican or the Democrat, whether it's progressive or whether it's conservative. You know what they operate on? Every news platform operates on this, Fear. It's the truth. Every news, I'm serious, you go and you listen to it and it's all bad news. Doesn't matter, good news doesn't sell. It's all bad news. You know why they uh, have you operate in fear is because fear will get you to keep returning for more news. I'm just so discouraged and I'm scared about the condition of our country and so you come back and you watch a little bit more and I'm really nervous about this election and you come back and you watch more and I'm really nervous about all these different things. It'll get you to operate in fear, but God called us to operate in faith. God did not call us to operate in fear. Uh, When we're living in fear, we're living with the under the sun worldview. Things are getting worse and worse. Things are getting worse and worse. Humanity is getting more and more wicked. But when you're looking through the lenses of, of this worldview under heaven, as we talked about a few weeks ago, that changes your perspective. Things are getting worse and worse. Here it is, but we serve a God who's in control. Things are getting more and more negative in the world in which we live in, but we serve a just and a righteous God who's sovereign and who's in control. Humanity is getting more and more wicked, but God, we read this a few weeks ago, knows the end from the beginning. From the ancient times to the things of old, before they're even taking place, before they even transpire, God knows about them. Solomon points out the problem. Secondly, really quickly, he points out the pain of the people. Number two, the pain of the people. Look at Ecclesiastes chapter four, verse number one says, so I returned and considered all the oppression that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of such as were oppressed. And they had no comforter. And on the side of their oppressors, uh, there was power, but they had no comforter. Uh, Solomon literally steps back and he looks at the condition of the society around him. And he says this, the corruption of the world around me is so bad that the weak are oppressed and have no consolation. They have no comforter. No one is consoling the victims, and no one is restraining their oppressors. Those who have power and those who have authority, no one's restraining their oppressors. And what's interesting to note, and I'm not trying to insult your intelligence, but who is saying this? Who's making this observation? don't, Don't be afraid to answer. Answer out loud. Who's making this observation? The king. It's not just Solomon, it's King Solomon. So Solomon is very in a real sense looking out on his own kingdom and he's making this observation and he's saying that the oppressed, uh, they have nowhere to go for comfort and the oppressors are not suffering the ramifications of causing the oppression upon the oppressed. So King Solomon is stepping back and he's taking the temperature of the kingdom and he sees the tears of the weak because they're oppressed. They've been victimized by society and they've been abused by the judicial system again. And what's worse is that they can't turn to those who are in power and authority because those are the ones who are causing the oppression. Again, this is a scary comparison to the nation in which we live in today. You know what Solomon is saying? Here it is. Life's not fair. Society's not fair. I'm looking out at the kingdom and the way that it operates is not fair. Those who are oppressed... Uh, They're not able to receive comfort. That's not fair. Those who are causing the oppression are not suffering the ramifications of the oppression that they're they're causing. That's not fair. And Solomon becomes so cynical about it that look what he says in verse number 2 of chapter number 4. He says, wherefore I praise the dead which are already dead more than the living which are yet alive. Uh, And this is classic Solomon fashion. As we've talked about just a few weeks ago, classic Solomon fashion, again, we find Solomon so despairing that he goes as far as to say that it'd be better to be dead than have to live in the corrupt world in which we live. And it would be better if we were dead. He takes it a step further in verse number three. He says, yea, better is he than both they which hath not yet been, who hath not seen the evil work that is done under the sun. Finally, he just comes out and he says, you know what? The world is so wicked and it's so vile and I'm so discouraged and I'm so depressed that it would be better off if I was never born. If you were never born. If we were never born to have to witness uh, all this corruption and this wickedness in society around me, it would be better off, we would be better off if we had never been born. That's Solomon's conclusion. Cynical. Where was his perspective? Uh, where was his worldview? Again, he says it three times in our text, and we know what it means. If you were here in week number one, we defined it. He has his worldview. Here's his goggles that he has on under the sun. I am now, op- and I don't want to repreach that message, but here's, here's what he's saying. I am operating on making this observation based off of beginning to end. Remember he compared it to the cycle of the sun and the cycle of the waters and how life is just mechanical monotony. It has a beginning and it has an end. Here's what he's operating on. He's operating on a fatalistic perspective, okay? A fatalistic perspective. Now, I've used that term a number of times in, in preaching even here, and I don't think I've ever took the time to define it. Here's what fatalism means. Fatalism means the belief that all events are predetermined and therefore inevitable, half right. And half truth is what? Whole lie. The belief that all events are predetermined and therefore inevitable, that describes Solomon in our text to a T. That is exactly how Solomon operates. All is vanity and vexation of spirit. It doesn't matter my attitude. It doesn't matter my perspective because we have a beginning. We have an end just as the cycle of the sun, just as the cycle of the waters. Everything is just mechanical monotony and it doesn't matter. It's all predetermined anyway. All is vexation and vanity of spirit. And and we can be very hard on Solomon. Very hard on Solomon for having that perspective, especially in light of what we know about Solomon and all the things he's accomplished and all the things that he has and all the things that God has blessed him with in regards to the wisdom and the wealth and all the things that God has given him. We can be very hard on Solomon, but a lot of the times Christians, even those in this room who are listening to me right now, will come to the same conclusion and have the same perspective of life. They can become so bogged down and discouraged with the things going on around them that it will cause you to disparage the very life that you're living in. I'm not just talking about uh, having suicidal thoughts. Uh, I, I expounded on that a couple of weeks ago, but let's take it a step further. I'm talking about where you are just so discouraged and you're so bummed out all the time on the condition of the world around you that it'll cause you to change your perspective of the sovereignty of God. I, I've talked to some young, ignorant couples that, I, I, that I've, I, I've talked to, and they'll say something, and I can just see it in their spirit. They feel like they're more spiritual by saying something like this. You know, I don't even want to bring children into this world. Uh, I mean, it's just, oh, man, the wickedness is just so vile, and I don't even want to bring children into this world. Now, maybe you've never said that, but you know what? Here's something that I have said even recently, and maybe you've said it too. How many of you have ever been said, I'm afraid of raising my children in this world? How many of you, maybe grandparents, you said something along the lines of, I'm afraid of my grandchildren's generation. That's okay. And you know what? It's okay to have a healthy fear and to be alert and to be understanding of the wickedness in the world around you. But be careful that you don't replace that line of thinking with the line of thinking that you are so discouraged and distraught about the wickedness and the vileness of the world around you that you take away from the fact, listen to me, the fact that we serve a mighty and a righteous and a sovereign God who is in complete control. It's okay to worry, but it's not okay to stress. It's okay to be alert. But it's not okay to be disparaging in regards to life and be so cynical and be so discouraged and bogged down where you'll say something sounds spiritual, but I just can't wait till Jesus comes. Hey, man, I'm looking forward to that great day. I'm excited about the return of our Savior, Jesus Christ. But you know what I'm not doing? I'm not folding my arms uh, in fetal position in the corner, so afraid about the condition of this world. You know what? Noah would have a thing or two to say about that. Uh, I, I believe that the world in, in which it is today, and I, I, trust me, I understand how wicked it is, and I understand the things that we're dealing with, but the world was so wicked at Noah's day that God decided to remove everybody from the face of the earth. So I'm pretty sure that Noah would have a thing or two to, to say in regards to that fatalistic perspective, yet nonetheless, how many people went on the ark? Noah had a family no one understood what it meant to raise his children and raise uh, raise his family in the condition which by the way again is far worse than it is today but his perspective was not so fatalistic where he thought well you know uh, god's not in control. Solomon points out the problem with the process and then he also shows us the pain of the people very quickly thirdly tonight the perspective of providence. The perspective of providence. Solomon gives three perspectives out of Uh, of providence in Ecclesiastes chapter 3. I'm going to spat them off very quickly. I like this first one. Here's the first one. The scales of justice will be balanced. The scales of justice will be balanced. Look at verse number 17 of chapter number 3. It says, I said in mine heart, God shall judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time there for every purpose and for every work. For there is a time there for every purpose and every work. Again, I won't repreach that message, but we know what happens at the beginning of this chapter. A very famous, well-known chapter. One of the most famous chapters in all of the Old Testament. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant, a time to pluck up that which is planted. And you almost get the idea that Solomon is continuing this thought. And he says, there is a time where God is going to judge the righteous and God is going to judge the wicked. Solomon says that although we might not see the hand of God working, that God is going to judge the righteous and the wicked. The oppressed of the weak will be comforted. And the injustice of the powerful upon the weak will be rectified. And by the way, you need to understand, he's not talking about eternity either. He's not talking about the end of your life when we're all going to face our maker and our creator. He's not talking about eternity. He's talking about here on earth. He's talking about right now, and here's why I know that, because verse number 18, it says, I said in mine heart concerning the estate of the sons of men that God might manifest them and that they might see that they themselves are beasts. Uses that word manifest. That word manifest means to showcase or to make a public example of or to demonstrate. So he's saying that God is going to make a public demonstration of the wicked sons of men in this life. You're going to see it. I'm going to see it. The scales of justice will be balanced, but you know what a very, very, very important part of verse number 17 is look at the latter part of verse number 17. It creates the context. Here it is. It says, "For there is a time therefore for every purpose and for every work." Did you get it? I'll read it again, "For there is a time there for every purpose and for every work. God's going to balance the scales of justice but he isn't going to do it in your time or my time. We're okay with the first part of that, aren't we? We're okay with knowing and understanding that, man, I'm excited. God's going to rain down judgment. He's going to rain down judgment upon those who have oppressed me, those who have oppressed the Christian faith. But we really, really, really have a problem with doing things in God's timing, do we not? We really have an issue with God executing his judgment on his timetable rather than our timetable. God might not balance the scales of justice in November of 2020. Some of you caught it. God might not elect to balance the scales of justice in November of 2020. That's when the election takes place, right? How many of you are, just be honest, and I'm not going to point you out. I'm not going to say you're carnal. I'm raising my hand with you. How many of you are a little bit out of shape in the condition of our country and where it's going? God might not elect to balance the scales of justice in November of 2020. In other words, the person who finds themselves in office might not be who you would, 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 would want there. Might not be the person who you elect there. Might not be the person, I'm not going to tell you who to, uh, to vote. I'd, I'd encourage you to look at the word of God and base uh, your, your ballots upon those who line up with scripture and all those different things. But nonetheless, you can go and you can vote. And I think that you ought to. I think that's a good practice. And I think you're, you're uh, executing your right as a citizen to do all those things. But just understand, I- I'm almost scared to say this, your vote really doesn't count. His vote counts. And God might not elect Are you okay with that? Do you understand what I'm saying? God might not elect to balance the scales of justice in 2020. And we read earlier in this very chapter that he makes all things beautiful. But when is it? In his time. In his time. That's a very important part of that verse. God might elect to to have our country and even even the situation and the social situation that we're dealing with to get worse before he decides that it's going to get better. He makes all things beautiful in his time. I don't want to get ahead of myself, but in Ecclesiastes chapter 8 and verse number 11, uh, Solomon says this because, look at this, because sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily, therefore the heart of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. That's a powerful verse. If you understand the context behind that, it's a powerful verse. Solomon says that because God does not execute judgment upon the wicked acts of the sons of men speedily or efficiently or quickly in regards to what we think, that they think that they're going to get away with it. Isn't that a funny thought? And that will even cause them to continue to make bad decisions. That will even cause the world to continue to progress in their wicked acts. Why? Because God has decided not to execute judgment. Yet, and they think they've escaped the judgment of God, therefore they continue in their wicked acts. But then he says this in verse number 13, but it shall not be well with the wicked, neither shall he prolong his days, which are as a shadow because he feareth not before God. In other words, here's what Solomon's saying, brace yourself because judgment day is coming. Maybe you ought not be so close to the world because you don't want to be there whenever God does rain down forth his judgment on the wicked and you get caught in the aftermath. I'm not talking about the judgment that is to come that we'll read about in the book of Revelation. I'm talking about judgment in regards to that neighbor who looks at you crooked. And uh, I'm talking about that boss who did not treat you like he should have treated you or that family member that didn't. Hey, listen, God might withhold judgment for a time, but because he's a holy, a righteous, and a mighty God, He can't withhold it forever. But he will elect to execute that judgment in his time. The scale of justice will be balanced. Secondly, I like this one. Death puts everyone on the same level. Death puts everyone on the same level. Look at verse number nineteen of, of Ecclesiastes chapter three. It says, "For that which befalleth the sons of men befalleth beast. Even one thing befalleth them, as the one dieth, so dieth the other. Yea, they have all one breath, so that a man hath no preeminence above uh, above a beast. For all is vanity. All go into one place. Excuse me. All are of the dust, and all turn to dust again." Solomon is saying that it doesn't matter who you are, how much wealth you've accomplished or how much wealth you've accumulated and all the different things you've accomplished and all the different possessions that you own. When we die, we die level with everyone and everything. And then he says this, including the beasts, including the animals. That's what he's saying. In other words, when you die and he's not talking about your eternal soul, he's talking about your physical body and what you've done while you're here on earth. When you die your body's going to do the same thing as Jimmy, your hamster. Your body's going to do the same thing as your cat. Actually, no, cats have the lowest, lowest, lowest points of hell. So we won't have the same, uh, we won't have the same outcome as cats. Did I offend somebody? I don't like cats. But he's, he's saying that our outcome in regards, to, uh, in regards to our body, whenever we leave this earth and our soul is going to reside in one of two places, hell or heaven, that your body is going to decay no different than your dog. It's going to be no different. I I didn't coin this phrase, but you cannot, you're not going to be towing a U-Haul behind your hearse. You cannot take all those earthly possessions with you or those earthly uh, accomplishments with you. I I had a dog, I had many dogs growing up, but the most memorable dog that I had was Muffin. She was a little wiener dog. And Muffin bit the dust just a couple of weeks before I went off to college. And I can remember because she was old as dirt and I walked outside and uh, it was in the hot, hot, hot Texas sun and I smelled something. I, I'm not trying to hurt anybody's feelings tonight. I don't want to draw a picture for you, but I just, I knew what it was. And when I walked back, and she was as stiff as a board. And there were maggots crawling in her and all these different things. And you know what? That's going to be all of us one day. Warren Buffett is going to suffer the same outcome as Muffin. Bill Gates is going to suffer the same outcome as your dog or my dog. He's saying that we have no different, it kind of levels the playing field. Whenever we pass from this life, our soul is going to reside either in two places, one of two places, heaven or hell. But your body is going to decay and turn into dust. Solomon is saying that death has a way of leveling the playing field. And then he says, previously he said in chapter 2 and verse number 16, he says, And how dieth the wise man as the fool? Solomon says that the scales of justice will be balanced. Then he says that death puts everyone on the same level. Lastly, he says this, live life with two appointments in mind. Live life with two appointments in mind. Look at verse 22 of chapter 3. It says, wherefore, I perceive that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his own works, for that is his portion for who shall bring him to see that, uh, excuse me, what shall be after him. Uh, Solomon says that we ought to operate and live every single day with two appointments in mind. Here's the first one. I have an appointment with death. I have an appointment with death. We already touched on it just a moment ago, but Solomon is saying that we're living on borrowed time and every single person has an expiration date. Death awaits us all and none of us know when it's going to happen. No one one knows when we're going to bite the dust or kick the bucket, but be assured that all of us are going to face death. Then he says, the second appointment that we should all be mindful of and be living for is this. I have an appointment with God. I have an appointment with God. He says, for who shall bring him to see what shall be after him? What's after him? We all know what it is. It's the judgment of God. And that's an appointment after you face death, which all of us are going to face death. After you face death, there's another thing you can be assured of, just as assured as you can be that you will die, you will meet God. Every day we ought to live our life with those two appointments in mind. I'm going to die and I'm going to meet God. Why is that so important? Most of you, when I started talking about this point, instantly went to eternity. And you thought, yes, we're all going to, it's appointed unto man once to die and after this the judgment. And hey, I I just want to throw it out there that if you don't know the Lord, you ought to get to know the Lord. And that's the only means of salvation. And I'm so thankful that God provides a way of uh, escape in regards to eternity with uh, with him in heaven or uh, eternity in torment in a place called hell. But I'm not talking about eternity. I'm talking about on this side of the cross. Pastor kind of mentioned it this morning and I mentioned it a few weeks ago. But we will all give an account not for the seasons of life but how we respond to them. Did you hear me? Every single man, woman, boy, and girl, when we get to heaven, if you know the Lord is your Savior, praise the Lord, you made it through judgment number one. Here's judgment number two. God's going to judge you according to your works. He's going to judge you according to what you've done or not done for him. He's going to judge you not according to the seasons of life. Remember, those are beyond our control. We don't have control over whether or not things are are going well or things are going bad. We don't have control over that. That's all in the hands of a sovereign and a mighty God. But like Pastor said this morning, you're going to give an account to how you respond to those things in life. You're going to give an account to the seasons of life. When those two appointments, here it is, here's the message. When those two appointments consume you, you realize really quickly that it doesn't matter whether or not life is fair. It only matters that God is sovereign, and here's a good word, God is sovereign and God is just. And that I can only control my attitude towards the seasons of life, no matter how unfair they may seem. Uh, Here's the statement I'd like to make, and it's a very profound statement. It might even sound controversial, but I'll qualify it after I make it. I'm thankful that God is not fair all the time. I'm thankful that we don't serve a fair God. And I could illustrate a number of different reasons why I'm thankful, but how about just one? If God were fair, we wouldn't have eternity in heaven. Here's what doesn't make sense. Here's what's not fair. That he who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. That's not fair. That doesn't make any sense. Matter of fact, if you just live with that perspective, it changes your entire lens of how you view life. When you realize that life's not fair, just remember that you're a beneficiary of the fact that you serve a God who's not fair either. Life is not fair. I'd like to close with the words of uh, David. David. Solomon's uh, father, David, had the same perspective. And he had the same issues that Solomon had in regards to the way that he looked at life and the way that he uh, 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 looked at the, at the lens of, of humanity under the sun. He had the under the sun mentality. Look at uh, look at uh, uh, Psalm chapter 73 and verse number 12. We're almost done. Psalm 70, uh, chapter 73 and verse number 12. Behold, these are the ungodly who prosper in the world. They increase in riches. Verily I have cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hands in innocency. For all the day long have I been plunged uh, and chastened every morning. If I say I will speak thus, behold, I should offend against the generations of thy children. When I thought to know this, look at what he says, it was too painful for me. The wicked prosper. He says everywhere he looks, the wicked are prospering. He says everywhere he looks, uh, it feels like those who are doing good are not receiving their reward. And those who are doing bad are receiving the reward. The wicked are prospering. My good works are in vain. The more I know about the wickedness and unfairness of the world around me, the more it pains my heart. Life is unfair. But then he says in verse number 17, a very important word, until. Until I went into the sanctuary of God. In the Old Testament, the sanctuary of God is a representation of the presence of God, okay? So he says, until I went into the sanctuary of God, then understood I their end. David said that once he got into the presence of God, he realized that the justice of God far outweighed his perception of the fairness of life. If you miss that statement, you miss the message. David understood that it was more important for God to be just than it was for God to be fair. Look at verse number uh, 18. He says, Surely thou didst set them in slippery places. Thou cast them down into uh, destruction. How are they brought into desolation? As in a moment. They are utterly consumed with terror as a dream when one awaketh. So, O Lord, when thou uh, awakest, thou shalt despise their image Thus my heart was grieved, and I was pricked in my reins. Why was he pricked in his reins? Why was he grieved? Because of the condition of the world around him? Was he grieved because of the condition of the world around him and the unfairness of life? No, he says it in the next verse. Here's why he was grieved. So foolish was I. So foolish was I and ignorant. I was as a beast before thee. He's saying that his heart was grieved not because of the condition of the world around him, but his response and his lack of trust in a just and a sovereign and a mighty and a righteous God. That he looks at himself and he says, I'm ignorant and I'm foolish. I'm paraphrasing, but here's what he's saying. I guess God was in control all along. And it was foolish of me to be so consumed and enamored and worrisome about the unfairness of life that I would look right past the fact that God is sovereign, He's in control, and He is a just God who will execute and make things perfect and beautiful in His time. He closes chapter 28, or excuse me, cha- uh, he closes the chapter in verse 28 by saying this, but it is good for me to draw near to God. I have put my trust in the Lord God that I may declare all thy works. David nor Solomon ever uttered these words, we serve a fair God. They never said that God was fair. Rather, they both concluded that God is sovereign and a just God who will make all things beautiful in his time. And this is very elementary. I'm going to close with this statement. We're going to go right into the invitation. But I feel like this is something that we miss in the Christian life all too often. When life is unfair, trust a just God. Very simple, but very profound. When life is unfair, trust a just God. We'll have a verse of invitation. If you bow your heads, close your eyes.